Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Susan, how's homeschool going? You know that scene in The Sound of Music where the kids like come down the stairs perfectly behaved and they all like sing a beautiful song and then are dismissed and obediently march up the stairs? Yeah, um, it's like the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just Hollywood, Susan. Like a fur-flying, chaotic, non-harmonious shit show. Oh, okay. So you feel like you're back in the spring? Yeah. It's it's yeah. better than the spring. We're back better in it. Better than the spring. Okay. Our son's school's uh, motto or like mantra is flexibility and optimism. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I think they took that from the Biden campaign. So, so I'm going to embrace that in my life too and be flexible and optimistic. I think the slogan should be build back better. <laughs> Flexibility and optimism sounds like a motto for like a North Korean prison camp or something. <laughs> hey, you know, Susan, if this doesn't work out with the homeschooling, you could just you could run your own troll farm. Exactly. Then I could put the kids to work and they can finally earn their keep. All the kids are doing it these days. Not a bad idea. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Trump Trolls edition. I'm Shane Harris. I would gladly run a children's troll farm. I think I would be an excellent troll master and an exacting disciplinarian, right? Yeah, you just need a room full of, like, middle school girls. Oh, sure. That would be the meanest troll farm (laughs) in the history of the world. It would make the Russians cry. It really would. Oh, my God. That would be bad. That's actually scary just to ponder that. I don't know why no one's thought about this yet. Right. Like, we could just give girls a break from school for fifth grade and have them troll Vladimir Putin. We put them all at desks for a year, you know, and have them be a troll farm. I think the Biden campaign is missing an obvious opportunity to combat the problems that parents everywhere are having with home education. This is I don't know why they haven't thought of it. It's a whole new grassroots mobilization effort. <laughs> we team them up with the K-pop kids. Indeed, indeed. I am here in the remote jungle troll farm with my good friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Woo-hoo. We're all together this week. This is super fun. Uh, on the podcast, a Trump-aligned political organization is accused of running a troll farm. And yes, there are teenagers involved. This is very interesting. The number two on the team investigating the origins of the Russia probe quits, reportedly over concerns that the investigation is being politicized. And Israel signs an historic accord with two Arab states as a fight over weapons sales to the UAE looms. 
let us start with aforementioned Troll Farm. Um, this was a great story that my colleague uh, Isaac Stanley Becker at The Post broke this week. I'll just read from uh, some of his lead here. Teenagers, some of the minors, are being paid to pump out messages on social media at the direction of Turning Point Action, an affiliate of Turning Point USA, which, of course, is the prominent conservative youth organization based in Phoenix. And the campaign draws on the spam-like behavior of bots and trolls with the same or similar language posted repeatedly across social media. But it is carried out, at least in part, by humans who are paid to use their own accounts, though nowhere disclosing their relationship with Turning Point Action or the digital firm brought in to oversee the day-to-day activity. Susan, you spent a great deal of time uh, reading the Mueller report and the special counsel's indictments, including of alleged members of a Russian troll farm. So I'm curious, as you read this story about what Turning Point Action is doing, what stood out to you? What looked the same and what looked different in terms of what the Russians did in 2016? Yeah, so I think there are similarities here, right? It's it's pretty clear that this is Turning Point and its sort of founder, Charlie Kirk, uh, and, and uh, sort of the Trump MAGA young conservative movement, um, learning some lessons from what the Russians did, um, engaging in similar, uh, although not identical behavior based on what's being described. Um, so one thing that's not totally clear from the story is whether or not uh, these this is uh, individuals who are posting messages that they're paid for under their true identities, um, right? So using their actual uh, social media accounts that really are their own names and sort of presenting themselves as they are uh, and just not disclosing that they're being paid to produce this content. Um, Or if this is more similar to the kind of coordinated, inauthentic behavior, right? The creation of lots and lots of fake accounts uh, that are purporting to be something that they're not. Um, But at its core, right? It's sort of sending these, uh, you know, both partisan and also disinformation messages that appear designed to sort of um, poke at the existing fractures in uh, in U.S. society uh, and, and broadly benefit the president uh, and the president's reelection. Um, you know, that said, one, we still don't have real answers on how effective this was, uh, even whenever the Russians did it, right? So obviously there were elements of uh, the Russian active measures campaign that were highly effective in, in ways that um, you, you really can sort of see uh, real impact. That tends to be sort of on the hacking and dumping side. Um, the kind of social media trolling operation, I think, continues to be kind of a question mark. And so uh, this might be uh, people sort of following a dirty tricks playbook, but like not actually having any real impact. Um, and I, I think we should sort of be cautious in, exa- in, in stating sort of how effective this is. Um, there is one way in this in which this is dramatically different from uh, the activity that uh, that Mueller uh, cataloged in his report, and that's that these are U.S. citizens. Um, these are individuals operating sort of a domestic disinformation campaign, and that is all the difference in the world whenever you come at it from a legal standpoint. So, if we look at what laws Robert Mueller used to go after the Russian operation, um, they they're all laws that are mostly and in many in a number of cases 
exclusively applicable to foreign nationals and foreign governments, right? So there's FARA, of course, that's aimed at uh, transparency and creating transparency for foreign actors. Uh, and then there are also broad prohibitions on foreign individuals participating in the U.S. election. Um, none of those are applicable to the domestic context. And it actually would be really hard to create similar laws that apply domestically. You have a First Amendment right to speak, to participate in a political discourse. You have a First Amendment right to say things that aren't true in most uh, categories. And so while we could imagine sort of laws that might target very specific things, we could imagine ways that this might cross the line, right? Um, things like disinformation designed to, uh, you know, fraudulently induce people to go to the wrong polling place, right? Sort of really specific things. Um, by and large, this is legal. Um, and so this is an area in which we really wouldn't expect the federal government or, or even state governments to have the tools to combat it. Um, we would want to be looking at sort of the, the platforms, right? Twitter um, uh, and Facebook and sort of what they're doing, you know, to, to either prevent these from sort of going viral and being amplified uh, or at least sort of identifying them for what they are. Um, you know, and, and then, of course, we would want to see sort of increased civic education uh, and sort of a, a more sophisticated voting public. Um, Shane, you tweeted out this really interesting link earlier this week to spotthetroll.org, right. um, which is this Clemson University site I hadn't seen before where you sort of look at profiles and you have to guess whether or not they're trolls or not. Um, I was really bad at it. I was shockingly yeah, bad at it. Um, and so I was sort of going to come in here and say like, well, we have a much more educated and informed public. Um, but just based off of sort of my own ability to uh, to identify a sort of a, a real person behind a Twitter account versus in that case, actually IRA identified trolls, um, I was pretty lousy at it. Um, and so that that did give me a little bit of cause of concern for um, for whether the general population um, really has come as far as we might have hoped in, in the past four years. Tammy. Yeah, so I think Susan's last point sort of gets me in the direction that I want to go in reacting to this news. I mean, on the one hand, okay, is it criminal? Is it not criminal? Is it just political dirty tricks? I mean, you know, we've seen political parties try to promote disinformation in the context of election campaigns in this country, like probably since the country started. But, you know, the idea of like sending out things that look like official mail, but aren't really official mail or telling people the wrong day to vote or the wrong polling place, that kind of stuff is par for the course. And so, you know, the fact that we have these online platforms that allow people to magnify those sorts of dirty tricks is obviously a problem, but it's it's a problem of scale, not of type. I think that relying on criminal statutes or relying on the platforms, you know, platforms now are rushing to create rules around um, terms of service rules and protocols to deal with active disinformation around elections. And that's all well and good. But it's very, very hard to find the line where you um, want to constrain or criminalize organized political activity. I don't like Turning Point USA. I don't like the fact that they're paying kids to do this. But as we say, it's a free country. And if it's not legal for a private company to do this or or even a, an NGO to do this, then, you know, you have to ask, does it then become illegal for NGOs to organize armies on Twitter to counter disinformation, which is one of the major tactics 
that civil society has been able to use in places like Macedonia and the Philippines and Taiwan. You know, you have civic activists who are trying to use the same technique um, for good instead of for bad. And so do you want to just ban it? Um, that to me is is really the challenge. And it's what says to me that at the end of the day, and obviously it's not a, a quick hit solution, but at the end of the day, the solution is to build resilience in the audience, in the population that's using these platforms, like educating people to be able to spot a troll. I, I get itchy about the idea of trying to ban any form of organized, you know, groups of people behaving in a common way on social media. Yeah, so I have a piece of good news on this front, uh, which is that the same week that this troll operation was revealed by the Washington Post, the company Bot Sentinel rolled out an incredible new product that is, I think, sort of not the full answer, but partly the answer to the dilemma Susan poses, which is, you know, as she rightly points out, that this is legal activity if done domestically. And it's, you know, you're actually allowed to sign up to be part of a bot army or a troll army and get paid as a teenager for promoting disinformation and, and propagating it. The thing is, it is very hard to do that without sounding repetitive and highly bot tro troll bot-like. And what Bot Sentinel has been able to do is figure out a pretty good algorithm for identifying accounts that are behaving this way, both human and uh, electronic. And now they have rolled out this fabulous product, which is a an automatic blocker so that anytime somebody with a bot sentinel rating above a certain level uh, replies to one of your tweets, it automatically blocks them. And if you know that certain words are being used in coordinated disinformation campaigns, you can basically automatically block people who are interacting with your accounts that are using those keywords. It is a pretty sophisticated little instrument. It's available for free. And I think when you think about the, the landscape that Susan describes, where it is very hard to imagine an effective legal regime uh, that responds to this uh, that would be constitutional. You're left with Twitter settings that enable you to control to a greater degree what you see, as well as external products that may regulate your environment for you. And if enough people use these aggressively, that diminishes the world's receptivity to uh, these disinformation campaigns, which in turn does a fair bit of what Tamara was just describing, which is increasing resiliency and resistance in the population. You might even say increasing herd immunity uh, to these kinds of disinformation campaigns. And that strikes me as, as a great tool and something that, you know, we, we should be adopting more of these things to build that kind of resiliency. But I have to say, I read this story and just felt extraordinarily depressed in that these were young people being exploited for this, not simply because they were being exploited and then maybe they willingly signed up for it, 
But I just, I would love to ask some of these kids, did you not think that what you were doing was wrong? Or if you did find out that it was wrong, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about being duped or pushing out this information just sort of blindly? And I, I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to students about news literacy and many young people's trust in the media is already at such a low. And I just found myself feeling like these kids' ignorance and naivete about just media in general, including social media, was being seized upon. And I and I hope that they understand that and the way that they were used. And if they really willingly engage in their First Amendment activities, great, you know, more power to you. But it just felt me feeling very dispirited uh, about where young people might be and how they were being brought into this process. Shane, were they ignorant and naive or were they just cynical? Like, yeah, whatever, man, it's just social media. Yeah, maybe that maybe that's it too, right? I mean, and, and I wonder if that is, you know, I don't know how pervasive that attitude is, honestly, about young people. I fear that it is quite pervasive and that there's something low stakes to them maybe about social media. I mean, I feel sort of like, you know, the angry old man yelling about the kids now, but that really get off my lawn, <laughs> get off my page. But this really, this really concerns me. And I, and I, I mean, I feel like our, our civic education of young people is so impoverished already that when I see things coming up like this, I just think, my God, these kids are completely outgunned. Just to end it on our segment on a high note, if you are a young person who is not old enough to vote yet, but actually is interested in constructive participation, because I think this is an area in which um, the best counter to this stuff is showing young people that participating in, uh, you know, elections and uh, and public politics and sort of claiming their rights as citizens, you know, in in true authentic ways and expressing their views um, is uh, one of really the the greatest rights and privileges of being an American citizen. So join Susan's botnet troll army instead of exactly. trolling, um, trolling points USA. But if you are a high schooler uh, who lives in Washington, D.C. and are interested in uh, in what you can do to help be a force for good in the elections in a totally nonpartisan way, um, you are allowed to be a poll worker uh, and they have a special program for high school students. I think you have to be 16 years old. Um, you, can, you can sign up. Uh, there's training Trainings, like especially for uh, specifically for high school students, I think you could get special extra credit at school, and I think they pay two hundred and fifty dollars, something like that. So don't sign up to be a, like you know a minimum, a less than minimum wage social media troll farm. Go be a minimum wage <laughs> poll worker um, and and do something good. And if you live in Virginia, check out groups like Virginia Civics, which our fantastic Jen Pachi Howell is involved in. Uh, and get involved in things like the We the People program. Do something positive, damn it. Get off your Facebook. Kids don't even use Facebook. That's like, that's the other thing. Is this a Facebook? I mean, if this is, if you find people trying to get you to post anything on Facebook, it's the olds trying to play you. Just before. Yeah, I mean, the kids only go on there to talk to grandma and grandpa. Oh my God, that's probably why they think it's safe and benign. Like, if there's one thing rational security has their finger on the pulse of, (laughs) it is young people. Young, hip, cutting edge trends. That's us. Speaking, (laughs) Speaking of trolls and whether we were right to investigate them in the first place, um, Nora Danahy, who is herself a respected former prosecutor who had been working with U.S. Uh, attorney in Connecticut, John Durham, on his investigation into how 
U.S. intelligence agencies pursued these allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 election, has resigned. Uh, This development was first reported last Friday by the Hartford Current and subsequently confirmed by other outlets, including us. It is said reportedly that Danahy had been considering resignations for weeks. Um, The Current, citing unidentified colleagues of hers, said she had resigned partly out of concern that the top echelon of the Justice Department was pressuring Durham's team to produce results before the election. Uh, Now, Ben, there have been no shortage of concerns along these lines from lawmakers, from former administration officials and experts, that Bill Barr is pressuring the Durham probe to produce some kind of damning report before the election as a way of validating Trump's claims that the whole Russia investigation, including of his campaign's possible ties to the Russians, well, and then there were actual ties to them, uh, was a witch hunt and never should have begun. So first, how do you read Danahy's departure? And then let's all talk about where the Durham probe is and how it might play out in the remaining seven weeks before the election. So Danahy has not said anything publicly. Uh, She's merely talked to colleagues um, and friends. But it's hard to read her resignation as anything other than her not wanting to be associated with whatever Durham is likely to produce under these circumstances, which is to say, you know, he is was appointed to look at something that had already been investigated in a pretty substantial way by the inspector general. He seems to be there principally for the purposes of uh, running down Bill Barr's conspiracy theories. And now it seems like they are under pressure, some of which has been public. Barr has specifically said he thought it was appropriate, notwithstanding the normal rule of reticence by federal prosecutors on politically charged matters of doing anything right before an election within 60 days. He thinks that it would be appropriate anyway to release uh, Durham's findings in the, within that window. So, you know, the, the political pressure to get something out before the election is pretty unsubtle. And I read Danahy's resignation as saying it's impossible to do a creditable job uh, under those circumstances. And to me, the real question is why Durham is allowing himself to be used in this fashion. Uh, He was somebody with a reputation beforehand, and now he is somebody who uh, will sort of go down in history as Bill Barr's hatchet man. And I, I find it very peculiar. Her behavior strikes me as very sensible. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think the only way we can read Danahy's resignation is that there it is the political pressure that we're seeing in public is also playing out in private, um, and that uh, sort of career Justice Department employees, um, although Danahy left and actually came back to the Justice Department just to work on this probe, you know, are, are resigning in protest, um, and, and maybe they're doing it quietly, and maybe others are doing it loudly. But um, you know, this is uh, this is obviously more evidence of sort of the overt political pressure. 
Um, in terms of sort of where it might go from here, um, I'm still struggling to understand what exactly the Durham investigation is at this point, right? So remember, it was like an administrative review, and then they had the Kleinsmith indictment, and then he pled, and so that went away. Um, there's never been any reporting of any other sort of criminal referrals or criminal elements. So is it an administrative uh, sort of probe, like this this weird nebulous thing? Is it a criminal investigation? If it is a criminal investigation, what are they talking about with the report, right? So the, the idea that there would be this report that's issued in the first place, uh, right? This is not a special counsel. Um, it, it, so it's a category in which sort of the nebulousness, I think, creates a situation in which the rules that, that the Justice Department would ordinarily have to abide by, Bill Barr isn't going to abide by. And so uh, sort of the the ordinary uh, norms and, and official rules we have against taking investigative steps or announcing decisions within 90 days of an election, all of those, I, I think are pretty plainly out the window. Um, and I think that we need to sort of see this resignation in the context of an attorney general who has completely gone off the rails just uh, in ways that uh, I think were, were uh, impossible to imagine even six or eight months ago. Um, so we have Bill Barr openly and with specific detail making up entirely, completely false claims about mail-in voter fraud. Claims that even the Justice Department afterwards has to admit that Bill Barr was just confused. Um, we have him spreading this sort of false smear uh, that China is, in fact, intervening on behalf of Joe Biden, that China is a bigger threat than Russia in the U.S. election. We saw him made that make that claim uh, in an interview with CNN. Um, he gave an interview recently when he was in Chicago, and, and this is a quote from the Attorney General of the United States. He's just gone on a rant about sort of mail-in voting fraud. And then he says, quote, you know, liberals project all this bullshit about how the president is going to stay in office and seize power. I've never heard any of that crap. I mean, I'm the attorney general. I would think I've heard of it. They are projecting. They're creating an incendiary situation where there will be a loss of confidence in the votes. Someone will say the president just won Nevada. Oh, wait a minute. We just discovered 100,000 ballots. Every vote will be counted. Yeah, but we don't know where those freaking votes came from. Barr said, right? That's crazy. It is crazy to hear the Attorney General of the United States talking in these overtly political incendiary terms, by the way, accusing liberals of attempting to uh, undermine confidence in votes and then immediately pivoting to this hypothetical uh, where 100,000 votes are going to be counted, uh, you know, sort of illegitimate votes are going to be discovered on election day. This is the kind of deeply, deeply irresponsible stuff that is just, it, it would have been inconceivable. Um, I think the writing has been on the wall about uh, the erosion of, of Barr's uh, mental state or understanding of the uh, ordinary norms that govern the Justice Department and govern the behavior of an attorney general. But, but really his behavior, his public behavior over the last month, I think is something uh, that deserves more attention, that's really, really alarming. And taken with sort of th these evidence about what's happening with the Durham probe, um, concerns about what a sort of an October surprise could look like in that kind of context. Um, you know, there's real reason to, to, I think, to be really alarmed about this. Uh, Tammy. 
So I, you know, I understand why Susan is focused on how off the rails the attorney general is and where the Durham investigation fits into that. But to me, this is really just what what Barr is doing and saying and how he seems to be driving the Durham investigation toward an almost like predictable you know, conclusion of something that gets released right before the election that is characterized in a way that's helpful to the president, almost regardless of what the text of any document that emerges from the Justice Department might say. I mean, we can predict that right now, right? And that's why this woman resigns. But to me, you know, Barr going sort of whole hog delusional and and pushing his department and Durham in these ways is just one more alternative way for senior officials in the Trump administration to respond to the relentless corrupt pressure of this president to act solely on behalf of his personal and political interests. You know, there are different ways to react. If you're Jim Mattis, you sort of keep your mouth closed as long as you can and then quit, you know, thinking that you have your dignity intact. If you're Steve Mnuchin, you know, you you sort of try to put a good semi-legitimate face on it and make it seem more normal than it is. And if you're Bill Barr, you just dive in the deep end and, you know, go whole hog in on on the strategy. And so to me, you know, yes, we can hold Barr responsible for what Barr is saying and doing. But at the end of the day, this is all about the president. This is about the corrupt, corrosive impact that this president's approach to the presidency and to the federal government has on every single person who works for him all the way down the chain. Ben, Durham does famously take a lot of time with his investigations. And if Barr wants something before the election, there's precious little time left. Uh, So where do you think he is right now in the probe? So it's a fascinating question. And it's actually one that, you know, Susan touched on as well, which is, you know, before you answer the question where he is in the probe, there's this antecedent question, which is what the heck is this probe, right? So it started out as an administrative review. And it was presumably an administrative review of the Justice Department's conduct uh, in opening the Russia investigation. But then we quickly learned that Barr was very interested in the behavior of other components of the intelligence community, and specifically that he was, uh, that Durham was spending a lot of his time kind of trying to second guess the intelligence community assessment on Russian interference, which of course was primarily agency work product, not Justice Department work product. So there's that been that component. How much of this is really about the ICA? Then, of course, Durham got some criminal a, a criminal referral from the Justice Department Inspector General related to this FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, uh, which he has subsequently prosecuted. And there are apparently some leak investigations that have also been shunted his way. And so one possibility about the Durham investigation, which I think is very likely, is that it isn't really a single investigation. It's basically a dumping ground for a combination of Bill Barr conspiracy theories, 
uh, leak investigations that were in other components, as well as misconduct allegations that arose out of other investigations. Oh, the other thing we, of course, know about Durham is that he was investigating the decision to open the Russia investigation in the first place. And we know that because when the inspector general investigation came out, Durham issued a statement disagreeing with it on its finding that there was adequate evidence to predicate the original Russia investigation. He took the view that there was only adequate evidence to predicate a preliminary inquiry. And so my assumption is that there are actually a lot of different threads to the Durham investigation, and that I wouldn't be surprised if there were more than we know, that there are all kinds of things that, for example, Republicans on the Hill have been demanding investigations of for a long time, you know, that uh, at some point somebody says, oh, just give it to Durham. And so he's got these mountain of kind of unconnected things. And I assume he's in very different places among in very different ones of them, which is why I think somebody like Nora Danahy might say, wait a minute, why should we get these things all done in a hurry to have something to say before the election? Why don't we treat this stuff in the regular order? And of course, the answer to that question is partly because in the regular order, you wouldn't have an investigation that was just kind of the garbage dump of the Justice Department for everything related to discrediting the prior administration's work product on Russia, on Hillary Clinton, on everything else that might have happened. Yeah, I love this idea that like Bill Barr has turned Durham into his own personal X-Files office or something. <laughs> and like Danahy is like Scully. She can't go on anymore with Mulder. We shall see. The truth is out there, you guys. <laughs> you just had to bring in the whole UFO angle. Just getting you, you warmed up for my object lesson later. Uh, let's talk about peace. Peace in the Middle East. Kind of, sort of. Uh, much ballyhooed and historic uh, White House signing ceremony on Wednesday where Israel established formal ties with two Arab states, uh, the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, and as part of the negotiations, uh, the U.S. has apparently agreed to sell or to, uh, I guess, approach or start getting ready to think about selling. Damn, you will tell us uh, F-35 fighter jets and other weapons that the UAE has long sought. Now, Tammy, deals like this often come with sweeteners and inducements to bring the parties to the table, and the U.S. obviously has a lot to offer here in the way of a commitment to sell military hardware. So is the addition of this commitment, or at least the promise to discuss it, uh, is that something that we've seen as a feature of other deals like this, or is it different in some significant way? Well, it's it's different in a few ways, um, and a lot of them have to do with the fact that uh, the broker for this particular agreement is Donald Trump. Um, but some of them just have to do with the nature of the weapon system that's at issue here. I mean, the F thirty five is it's a whole step change from any other fighter aircraft that we have had or that we've sold. Because it isn't just an attack aircraft, it is a platform that integrates real-time battlefield intelligence 
and it's a stealth fighter. And so it is a unique capability. I don't think there's any, I don't think the Russians or Chinese have anything close to this. And so it's not a small thing for us to sell it to another country. It means that we, number one, believe that they can use this really sophisticated capability. Number two, that we trust them with this really advanced American military and intelligence technology that they're not, you know, that it won't go astray, so to speak. And number three, that we trust them not to use this incredibly powerful tool in ways that we don't like or that might be contrary to our interests. And so, you know, a lot of the news coverage about this potential sale of F-35s, which is clearly something the Emiratis expect, like that was their quid pro quo. And Trump has said, I have no problem giving them the F-35, probably because he doesn't really understand what the F-35 is or does. And all he knows is that it costs a lot of money. But, you know, the two issues that are getting a lot of press coverage are, number one, Will Trump go around Congress to get this sale done before the election? Uh, we've seen congressional opposition to arms sales to both Saudi Arabia and UAE because of their war in Yemen. And Pompeo and the president did go around Congress to sell weapons to the Saudis last year by declaring it was an emergency. Uh, so is he going to go around Congress? And we saw statements already from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, as well as from Nancy Pelosi, saying we expect to be involved in this. And then the other issue that is getting a lot of conversation is Israel's qualitative military edge, which is a commitment that the United States has actually enshrined in law, that we will ensure that Israel has military superiority over any potential enemy or coalition of enemies. And so if we're going to sell F-35s to the Emirates, what are we going to give the Israelis to compensate for that? Because the Israelis already have F-35s. And, you know, usually when we're doing sophisticated sales to our friends who are hypothetical adversaries of Israel, we have a long technical discussion with the Israelis about what we are and aren't going to include in that platform, what we're going to give the Israelis to compensate you know, et cetera. And we haven't done any of that. So, you know, this is one of those classic Trumpian things that it, it all sounded great as long as you don't think about it very hard. But the details here actually really matter. And it could get Trump in hot water with Senate Republicans. It could get congressional Republicans who are up for re-election in hot water with pro-Israel constituencies at home. It could get the Israelis in hot water with the Trump White House. It could potentially screw up the Israeli-Emirati deal down the line. And Tammy, just on that last point, you know, am I sort of understanding you correctly to say that um, what might be happening is here is we're going to get essentially trapped in a cycle of constantly having to give Israel more and more in order to offset, right? Like, is there is there genuinely no uh, like limiting factor on the definition of of military superiority? And and if that's true, how do you even how could you possibly possibly sort of plan to manage this in the long term? Or how does the United States possibly plan to manage sort of those expectations and legal requirements, right? It, it just seems almost inevitable that you would get trapped. Well, in terms of a cycle of constantly having to give the Israelis support that helps keep them on top, we're already there. 
And that's it was a longstanding commitment by the executive branch before it got enshrined in law. But it's been enshrined in law for I don't remember, at least a decade now, I think. And so this, you know, this is part of America's commitment to Israel and also its vision for security in the region is that we don't want any other state in the region to think that they might be able to beat the Israelis in a fight. And we're going to make sure that they know they can't. And that's one way we're preventing war. Right. So it's not it's not that this is just some kind of gift to the Israelis. This is part of America's strategic approach to the region. I think the challenge here is that, you know, if we give F-35s to the Emiratis because they opened diplomatic relations with Israel, then do we give them to the Bahrainis because they also opened diplomatic relations with Israel? And what about the Saudis who at some point, probably after King Salman dies and Mohammed bin Salman becomes king, they'll probably open up to the Israelis. So then are we going to give the Saudis F-35s? Are we going to give MBS F-35s? I mean, so the problem here is not the QME protection on the Israeli side. The problem is this slippery slope we're creating in expectations in the region for access to this incredibly powerful tool. And then there's the fact that all these guys, including the Emiratis, by the way, also buy weapons from the Chinese and the Russians, also have Chinese like military guys on the ground and Russian military guys on the ground doing training and advice. So if we're going to have our most sophisticated, you know, intel slash attack aircraft sitting there, how are these partners of ours going to protect it from the kind of military espionage that the Chinese are famous for? And it does seem, you know, well, let me ask you this, Tammy, because I don't want to be too cynical, but I think maybe sometimes in these things you can never be cynical enough. But, you know, Jared did not deliver his promised Middle East peace plan. And I don't know whether you think that he is trying to pass this off as, you know, I don't know, the consolation prize for that or close enough. But, you know, how do you see the Trump administration trying to take political advantage of this. I mean, I think that he would like his supporters to think that he just signed the Camp David Accords on the South Line of the White House, and that is not what happened. Oh, oh, Shane, he didn't sign the Camp David Accords. He did something bigger. He signed the Abraham Accords. (laughs) Okay. And he's already been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Peace Prize. I just want to say... The great law professor Twitter account, Scott Shapiro, who is, by the way, the funniest law professor Twitter around, tweeted the other day, quote, ever since I was a little Jewish boy growing up in northern New Jersey and attended yeshiva, I dreamed of the day that Israel would finally make peace with Bahrain. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Although I have to say, like, if for your average Israeli, what is most exciting about this is that Instead of having to fly through Istanbul to get to Southeast Asia, they can now fly through Abu Dhabi and Dubai. It's cheaper and faster. And the mall is better. (laughs) Right. I do just want to give a shout out to two colleagues who did a fantastic dissection of the issues around this potential arms sale. Uh, Barbara Leaf and Dana Struhl at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. It's a piece that came out in War on the Rocks yesterday or the day before. Um, and I really commend it to everybody who wants to get into the nitty gritty on this. All right. Let's go on to object lessons. Um, ben, why don't you go first? 
my object lesson is a as part of my open dm life on twitter i received a message from karen salazar who introduces herself as a finance professional from the twin island nation of trinidad and tobago and she uh, uh describes her history reading lawfare which i won't go into but i i wanted to share her words about rational security. She writes, I love listening to rational security. Shane adds pizzazz to the podcast that is unmatched. I love hearing Susan's passionate declarations of her position, and I'm a huge fan of how she enunciates her words. And it's a joy to hear Tamara weigh in on issues. I don't know if it's bad or good, but her oral demeanor seems so unassuming Yet she brings this amazing level of national security facts and expertise to the table whenever she speaks seriously about the issue at hand that I am surprised each time. Keep up the great work. So uh, from all of us to Trinidad and Tobago to Taryn, uh, thank you. Uh, that was a lovely note. And uh, keep listening. Um, it's great to hear from you. Did she have anything nice to say about you? Uh, well, she wrote the note to okay. me, uh, and it was a, a note about how much she liked lawfare and rational security. So this was the stuff she was saying that was not about I think me. it was about us. That's okay, though. Yeah, that she actually wrote the second nice line. No, no, the rest, <laughs> of the, the rest of the note was the one problem with rational security is you, Wittes. <laughs> I think you need to remove yourself from the show. People stop me on the street to tell me they love Shane. They yell it out of car windows. I know. It's tough. Slip it's really notes, tough. anonymous <laughs> notes under the door. <sighs> More Shane Harris. I know. Listen, I just, I'm a river to my people. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a nice little cinematic illusion for those who get it. Um, Tammy, why don't you go next? Save me. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, wow. I'm so blown away by that note. It was really lovely. Thank you, Taryn. Um, so my object is also courtesy of a rational security listener who is also a friend and colleague, Kirsten Fontenrose at the Atlantic Council, who heard our discussion about the skiff at the Australian oh, embassy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that I might have overdone it on the low-flying helicopter <laughs> reference during that segment <laughs> because Kirsten, who worked in the White House relatively recently, decided to send me a very special gift. Now, you may know that the White House issues a Christmas ornament every year, and it's a favored collector's item. Uh, it's usually, you know, a picture of the White House decorated for Christmas or something from the White House garden. I think one year in the Obama administration, they had an ornament of Bo the dog. This year, or rather last year, Christmas 2019, the ornament, which I am now a proud owner of, thanks to Kirsten, is a beautiful, glittery Sikorsky helicopter. <laughs> Low. Flying low with a Christmas wreath on the nose. It says White House Christmas 2019. It is like a little image of Marine One. And uh, and now I have one of my very own. Can I just point out about this that, you know, if 
Donald Trump could do one thing to make Tammy more excited about electing Joe Biden, it would be making low-flying helicopter into the White House Christmas ornament. I mean, it's like it's like this special fuck you from the White House to Tammy Wittes. <laughs> you know, they had it in mind. Uh, Susan, what's your object? My object lesson is part article, part Twitter account. Um, so listeners might be familiar with the Twitter account at CAF in US. Uh, it is the verified Twitter account of the Canadian Armed Forces working in the United States. Um, and McLean's has this great profile of uh, Captain Kirk Sullivan, who is uh, the voice behind this account, um, which is just one of the most and probably only charming national security accounts on Twitter. Um, in which uh, this emissary of the Canadian Armed Forces like engages deeply with the like you know small questions um, and quips of of the, its followers, and so it's um, it's like a a sort of lighthearted little ray of sunshine in a very bleak national security Twitter world. And it's actually the the article itself is really fascinating about the Canadian government's approach to this, which is um, to have some somebody who um, is given total freedom to say whatever they want and make statements sort of based on uh, the core values of the Canadian Armed Forces and sort of takes his cues from leaders. Um, but actually, it produces this sort of um, uh, very charming and an authentic diplomatic tool. Um, and so I would commend both the Twitter account and the article about the people behind it uh, to listeners. It is um uh, a very nice read. I wonder if he's ever talked about the movie Canadian Bacon. You could tweet that at him, and I promise <laughs> they would answer. Respond. You know, one hundred percent. That is the commitment the Canadian Armed Forces in the United States <laughs> have made to their brothers, <laughs> the American people. <laughs> I love it. We need more of this light in the world. Uh, speaking of worlds, my object lesson is: you know, if you know me, you know where I was going. Is there life on Venus? Astronomers say yes. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh (laughs) Shane, it's not happening. It's going to take like three months and then that story is going to get debunked. Okay, well, here's the thing, guys. So apparently astronomers, and those are real scientists, have reported in a pair of papers, not one, two, and they have not actually collected specimens of life uh, on the Venusian landscape, <laughs> or found Venusian, or found microbes high in the atmosphere. But, 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 with their very powerful telescopes, again, science, they have detected a chemical called phosphine, never heard of it, in the thick Venus atmosphere. And after some analysis, the scientists say that that something now alive is the only explanation for the chemical's source. Uh, just reading from the New York Times here, some researchers question this hypothesis, boo, and suggest <laughs> instead that the gas could result from unexplained atmospheric or geological processes, sure, on a planet that remained mysterious. Um, anyway, this was a delightful uh, little story. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, uh, phosphine pooping microbes on Venus is quite what I was hoping for. Maybe John Durham will look into it. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> 
Bill Barr is like, and then they're going to find 100,000 ballots on Venus, and no one's going to know how those got there. He's going to have John yeah, Durham and look was, into and, it. And, and, and what was Pete Strzok's role in putting the phosphine in there? <laughs> the insurance policy is phosphine. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, excellent, outstanding. Well, you know, I don't know. We might be moving to Venus anytime soon, but the neighborhood just got a little bit smaller, guys. It's such a good feeling. Oh, and that does bring us this time for real to what? Wait, wait. before you wrap it up, oh, Shane, I just want to throw some cold water. Oh, again, on this. you haven't done enough, yeah. really. Hasn't no, no, the city cause... cut the water off to your home yet? So, Shane, when you want to clear something of microbic mm-hmm. life. Like, make sure there's no nothing alive. What do you do? Uh, you just like, you know, like the president says, get some Clorox and inject it or spray it. Pour it in a martini glass and just take it on down. <laughs> you boil it, right? Sure, yes. What is the surface temperature of Venus? Listen, I don't know what these alien microbes can withstand, and neither do you. <laughs> Always applying. He's encouraging. Very, maybe we shouldn't be so Earth-centered in our scientific outlook. <laughs> We're never getting out of here with that attitude, mister. Boiling microbes. Boil you. <laughs> brought to you by... You can buy boiling microbes <laughs> on the lawfarestore.com. And that's, of course, because Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find pictures of Ben to put on dartboards at, um, <laughs> at boilingben.fun. <laughs> TheLawfareStore.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can, of course, find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a nice rating and review. It will make sure the algorithm helps people on Venus find the podcast so they can listen to it as well. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Charlie Kirk and his unauthorized rendition of Can't Stop the Feel. Feeling. Do you get it? From trolls? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. See? You come around to the idea eventually. Just like all my the funniest ideas. jokes are the ones you have to explain. Oh, definitely. The oh, sure, yes. They're not quite joke grenades. They're just like <laughs> joke viruses. They take a while. Oh my goodness. Well, Sophia Yan, as far as I know, appreciates my humor because I haven't heard from her objecting to it. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.